Ezra chapter 3, place a marker there, and Zechariah chapter number 4. It is good to be back at Lancaster Baptist Church and West Coast Baptist College, graduated class of 2012, and uh, this was definitely the best classroom that I had, sitting right where you sat, and it's a joy to be back. And uh, let me just encourage you with a a challenge that I have found out in the five years that I've uh, been in the ministry and away from the campus here, is that the things that you do here can and will follow you uh, after your time here. We have been traveling on deputation for 13 months now, just finishing up uh, 13 months and uh, getting ready to start the church in Phoenix in February. And we've run into a lot of graduates, a lot of pastors that have asked us to find out we're from West Coast. And the, the, the one thing that I get asked probably more than anything else is, are you the guy that was involved in a chapel skit a few years ago? And my senior year of college, I was approached by a couple of guys, and they said, we'd like to try to have some fun in chapel. And they had written a full-length script that we imitated a chapel service, and each different member of the staff was imitated by somebody else. And they approached me to be Dr. Getch. And even some people here uh, this week during conference have come up to me across the way and said, were you Dr. Getch? And uh, so I've been asked since that time, how did you get to do that? Uh, we, got to per- we performed the chapel skit for Dr. Getz the night before. He sat back there by the camera, and uh, the amazing man that he is allowed us to perform it that next day. And so how did you get to do that? And the truth is I have no acting ability or talent or anything along those lines. The truth is out of the entire student body, I am the only one whose nose was big enough to qualify as Dr. Getch. So, in four years of Bible college, that's my claim to fame. I'm the guy with the big nose. So, what a legacy. No, but uh, it is sure good to be back here this morning. You know, all this week, we have seen presentations. We've seen chapel messages. By now, I know you, if I did the calculations right, if you've been in every single service and devotions, you've had between 12 and, and 13 different messages Uh, relating to different aspects of missions, along with video presentations and things of that nature. And so I I hope you have got a vision for world missions by now. Uh, If not, it is not the fault of the conference. There's been plenty of ability to do that. I hope you have watched videos from Honduras and Chile and and where the Cometas are just a few minutes ago and different areas of the world and dreamed big things for the Lord, envisioned you being there in just a few years But I also hoped you paid attention to the testimonies that were given here each night. And every night, Pastor Chapel would ask, how long have you been serving? How long have we supported you? And there was a a reoccurring theme that was 17 years, 20 years, 21 years, 24 years, and so forth. And they say Rome was not built in a day, and neither is the church. I just want to remind us this morning that there is a process for you and I to get to the places and the men and the ministries that we've seen earlier this week. I just want to remind us of that process in the time that we have this morning. So I want us to look at Zechariah chapter 4 starting out here. And I hope you have your marker in Ezra chapter 3 as we'll be looking there in just a moment. Zechariah chapter 4. I don't want us to start reading in verse number 8. The Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? They shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through 
the whole earth. And again, I call your attention to the question that was asked at the beginning of verse 10. Who hath despised the day of small things? On March 28, 1990... An NBA game took place between the Chicago Bulls and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And at that time, the star player for the Bulls was Michael Jordan. And he had a wonderful, amazing night that night. He played 50 minutes and he scored 69 points. In fact, Michael Jordan scored more points on that night than he did at any other night in his illustrious career. And the Bulls went on to defeat the Cavaliers 117 to 113. At that time, there was also a rookie on the Bulls roster named Stacey King. And if you were to look at Michael Jordan's stat line for that night and Stacey King's stat line, it would not be nearly as impressive. Stacey King played 17 minutes off the bench, and he scored one point. He took four shots. He missed four shots. He took two free throws and made one of them. Michael Jordan, 50 minutes, 69 points. Stacey King, 17 minutes. One point. After the game, reporters flooded the locker room trying to get a quote from Michael Jordan about his career night. And one reporter, apparently unable to reach Jordan, found Stacey King. And he decided he would ask him his thoughts on the night. To which King replied, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. (laughs) I like that attitude, don't you? You know what Stacey King was telling us? How one perceives their circumstances makes all the difference. In this life, it is easy to gravitate towards people, towards events, or even objects that man might consider big. It's easy to gravitate towards that which one might consider to be grand or or eye-appealing. And in fact, creation is made up of many of these particular landmarks. Every year where we are in Arizona, every year 5 million people travel to see the Grand Canyon. And every year 30 million people travel up north to view Niagara Falls. Now I've been standing at uh, the Grand Canyon before and I've taken a seat in front of it with the canyon behind me. And at that time I just held our our only child at that time. We have three now, but just a little girl. And I'm not a gigantic uh, stature of a man myself, but I looked minuscule, minuscule compared to the giant canyon behind me. I still have that picture today. You know, out of those five million people that look at the Grand Canyon, there's not one of those people that see that vast canyon and say, boy, how many shovels did it take to do this? Nobody looks at the 30 million people. Nobody looks at Niagara Falls and say, boy, how many buckets of water did it take to transport to get this thing? Now, whether all 5 million or all 30 million believe in a creator God, I would say in the day in which we live, probably not. But you'd be hard pressed to find one of them that doesn't look at that great landmark and recognize there is something, or as we know, someone bigger who is responsible for what we're seeing. You know why all of those people flock to those landmarks? Because it's easy to see God's majesty in the big things. It's easy to see God's hand at work and when things are progressing and things are moving fast. It's easy to see God's majesty in the big things. But it's in the day of small things that God's majesty and God's hand is not as easily seen. It's not that He's not working. It's not that he's not moving, and it's not that he doesn't have a plan, it's just in the day of small things, it's not as easily seen. 
And when we perceive that what God is doing in our lives and perhaps our ministries is small, if we're not careful, we can begin to despise them. And that's what's taking place here in the text in Zechariah chapter 4. Zerubbabel has led almost 50,000 people back from 70 years of captivity, back to reestablish their lives in the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that when they reached Jerusalem, their priorities were right. They said, before we build the wall around the city, before we even build our own houses, before we plant crops or do anything to get our life back to the situation where it was, before we go any further, we're going to reestablish the Levitical system of worship. We're going to build the altar. We're going to lay the foundations of the house of God. We're not making another move until we worship God. At least their priorities were right. We're not doing anything else until we worship God. And the Bible tells us that they built the altar and after they had a time of sacrifice, they laid the foundations of the house of God. And that's when quite an interesting scene takes place. Now if you will, turn back over to Ezra chapter 3 and we'll pick up the story here. Ezra chapter 3, let's look at verse number 10. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because He is good, for His mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Hey, it's an exciting time. We've got the house of God back. We're we're back in Jerusalem, but not all is well. Verse number 12, But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. I don't know about you, but this must have been quite an impressive, amazing sight to see. might have even caused confusion among the people. You have one side of what's taking place here, this younger generation that is so excited, we're so zealous, we're, we're so glad to be back in Jerusalem, and we're shouting and praising God, and then... On the other side, you have the other older generation that is weeping. And perhaps if you've seen across the auditorium during church services as a special is played or a choir song starts to sing, perhaps you have seen individuals just slowly with tears weeping down as the music touches their hearts, but that's not the kind of weeping that's taking place here. It's a, a, it's a cry of anguish and a cry of sorrow. Their, his cry is so loud that just a casual bystander can't discern which noise is louder. Is it the noise of joy or is it the noise of weeping? Just in the time that we have left this morning, I'd just like to try to make a few statements from the Word of God, give us some principles that can help us and develop some thoughts so that we can avoid what I believe is taking place here, so that we try not to avoid the day of small things, whether it is with our local church, our ministry, or whatever opportunity it is that God gives us. I'd just like to say this statement to start off this morning. It is our nature to despise small things. It's in our nature to despise small things. And I believe the text here in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 12 gives us a couple, a, a, a better glimpse, gives us a few reasons why this is the case. Expectations can cause you to despise small things. Our expectations can cause this. Now I want us to try to put ourselves in these men's shoes, these ancient men, and, and understand the struggle that they're going through. 
The Bible says they are ancient men. They've just been released from 70 years of captivity, starting with the Babylonians, and now at this time it's the Persians, and they've just been released from that captivity. They have lived the majority of their lives waiting for and anticipating this day. They remember the day. Perhaps they were four, perhaps they were five, or whatever age they were as a young child. They remember when Nebuchadnezzar came storming through Jerusalem and set fire to the city and set fire to their homes. Perhaps many of these same men had their own parents and own family members killed. They remember that day. They remember watching as Nebuchadnezzar took all the gold and the precious stones that had been dedicated to their holy God and took them out of the house of God and dragged them away to Babylon and then desecrated them in the house of an idol. Perhaps these same men have been through the brainwashing of the Babylonians. We're going to change your name. We're going to change your diet. We're going to change your method of thinking. Anything and everything that associates you with God and Jerusalem, we're eliminating it. You will now act and think like us. For 70 long years, they've gone through that. And each day going through that, and you can see them coming back to their homes and just staring out the window and just thinking, boy, if I could just get back home. If I could just get back to Jerusalem. Man, I wish I had that temple again. I wish I could go to the house of God again. I wish I could just lift up my voice there in the house of God. And then Ezra chapter 1 tells us the heart of Cyrus is stirred and he releases a, co- a commandment, an ordinance that uh, any whose hearts desire to go back can go back. And you can picture these men jumping up and racing to the front of the line. Yes, this is my desire. This is what I've been waiting for. And now on top of this, they have a long, difficult journey to get back to Jerusalem. The distances between the two lands encompassed over 500 miles. In fact, the second group that comes back with Ezra in chapter 7, the Bible says it takes them five months to get to to where they're going. And it also says they have to secure letters from the king stating that nobody harmed them and nobody hindered them from reaching Jerusalem. If they have to secure those letters, what does that tell us? It means this caravan is vulnerable. It means their adversaries would love nothing more than to have this group fall out by the way and discourage them from getting to the place where God wants them to be. And sadly, this can happen still today to many missionaries and church planters as they embark on a journey known as deputation. I'm sure if you were to take the time to ask the different missionaries who are here, you would ask them, what are some of the, the ups and downs? What are some of the difficult days of deputation? They, would, they could tell you some stories. They could tell you there are times when deputation, the long journey is, is tiring, it's, it's taxing, maybe even a little discouraging. We were headed to a church outside the Las Vegas area and, and going through uh, uh, Monument Valley, Utah. Anybody ever been to Monument Valley, Utah? Beautiful, beautiful era. Terrible cell phone reception. It was the beginning of the year and we had just found out that we were expecting our third child and we were excited about that. And we, There's about one rest stop between Colorado and Las Vegas as you go through that route there just in the middle of nowhere. Beautiful scenery, but middle of nowhere. We got to that one rest stop and my wife went inside to use the restroom and then she came out a few minutes later and she uh, had tears streaming down her eyes and I said, what, what's going on? Yeah, I, she noticed she had been having some, some pain and some difficulty throughout that day and we had just come over from a, a stomach bug and I just thought that that was r- related there. And she shared the news with me that she had experienced some other symptoms that led us to believe that we were losing the child that the Lord had given us. And all of a sudden, your mind is no longer a mindset of a missionary. You're now a husband. You're now a father. 
And what, what can I do to take care of my wife? And uh, we made the decision there. We're about six hours away from our home in Phoenix. And at that time, our insurance only covered us in Arizona. So I said, let's just bolt and get back to Arizona as quick as we can. On top of that, our two children, ages two and under, they were still suffering from the stomach bug. And there were many blowouts in the back of the car that night, that day. And it wasn't a tire. You're dealing with that. You're dealing with the sick children behind you. You're dealing with the, your, pain, your wife who's going through agonizing pain. And we're rushing to get back. I drove so fast to Phoenix that day that I blew out our transmission. The Lord worked all of that out. He was merciful to us and preserved the life of our child. He got us into contact with the right people who fixed our vehicle free of charge and could watch our kids while we were at the hospital. Probably the most difficult thing about deputation is just the unknown. You just don't know what's going to happen. What got you through those days? You ask these missionaries about some of their stories. What gets you through those days? It's the recognition of, hey, this is just a necessary step in the process. The journey is not the end goal. Hey, get into where God wants us to be is the end goal. We're just one step closer. One day closer. Yes, this day is difficult. Yes, this day is a little bit longer than the one before. But I'm one step closer to where God wants me to be. That's the mindset of these men, 500 miles, 70 years of waiting. And now they finally reach Jerusalem. The altar is built. The foundations of the temple are built. And this is it. Their grand expectations are not met. And I will tell you, college student, as you get out and begin to serve the Lord, there may be times when your expectations of ministry might not be met as well. In traveling, we got to talk with some other uh, graduates and got to talk with some other pastors. And one of the things that kind of comes up in conversation is, what are some things you learned now that you wish you would have learned at college? And, it's, and sometimes it's not that it wasn't taught at college, it's just we weren't paying attention. And there are other times where we do believe there, there is a class, I think, and from all of our talks, I, I think there is a class that really would help the senior class, especially those that are about to go out in ministry, we need to have a class about the intricate parts of a toilet. TP 101, toilet preparation. I was in church on a Wednesday night, got there a few minutes early, or got there early and was greeting people. And there was a lady coming to our church, we'll, we'll just call her Judy. And she was very a similar situation as the woman that Brother Bunnell was describing last night. A woman that is uh, not the easiest to love, but it's a woman that's just seeking for somebody to love her. And she came in, she, because of her ride situation, she came in about a, an hour early and she came rushing up to me, Pastor, Pastor, I've got a problem. Can you help me? And I've since learned that it's wise to ask, what is the nature of the problem before you agree to help? Uh, so I, asked, what, what is the, I said, sure, what do you need me to... And before I could finish, what do you need me to do? Judy had me by the arm and she was dragging me across the hallway. And before I knew it, she had dragged me in the ladies' restroom. I'm a little more agitated, right? Judy, what are you doing? She said, Pastor, we're out of toilet paper. I said, well, I stocked the bathrooms. I know there's toilet paper there. I don't know what happened. There was a roll that was empty. I said, well, Judy, there's more rolls right here on the, on the toilet. You just pick it up and you, you just put it right there. Pastor, I don't know how to change the roll. You don't know how to change. And then my mind starts asking a number of different questions. What do you do at home? And then, I just shook your hand. What do you... It's been a very difficult situation. I'm not supposed to be in the ladies' restroom. 
But I know if I say no and I leave, she's going to come following me and chasing me. All right, it's right there. I, I pull it up and I, I, I get it fixed up just as matter of fact as I can, as quick as I can, and rush out of the bathroom and looking around kind of this way, making sure nobody saw me. And One dear lady comes to me after the service and says, Pastor Mitchell, were you in the ladies' bathroom? <laughs> yep, yes, ma'am. She said, oh, good. Oh, good. She said... I was in the stall next to you, and I heard your voice, and I thought I was in the wrong bathroom. I'm so good. <laughs> <laughs> toilet preparation 101. This is how you use a plunger. This is how you use toilet paper. There are certain things that you get out into ministry. You have great dreams and great visions, and boy, your expectations might not quite be like you thought they were. Certainly, in a way, we ought to expect things from God by faith. I'm, I'm not asking you to see the, these presentations and, and not have a dream and not have a vision. I just want us to understand this morning that lofty expectations are often a tool the devil uses the wrong ways on God's people. Because God's ways are not always our ways. And God's thoughts are not always our thoughts. And God does not always act according to our timetable and according to our plans. And when that happens, discouragement and even bitterness can set in. And that's when we begin to despise the small things and in doing so miss what God is doing in them. That's what happened with Naaman. You remember the story of Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5, captain of the host of Syria, mighty man of valor, also a leper, and sends to Elisha and requests help, and Elisha doesn't even come. Instead, sends a servant back to, to Naaman and, and tells him, go and dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman, this mighty warrior, soldier, gives orders left and right. This is his response, Second Kings chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, Naaman was wroth, and he said, I thought... Did you catch that? Behold, I thought... He, Elisha, will surely come and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. What's he saying? That's not what I thought God would do. And Naaman almost missed the miracle. Naaman almost missed God working specifically in his life because God did not work according to his expectations. And many times, like Naaman... God may not act according to our plans because like Naaman, we can become too big to handle little things. Naaman, it's just the Jordan River. Well, surely Elisha will come and stand. Surely he will wave his staff, do the hokey pokey, do something. No, it's just the Jordan River. Hey, I hope you dream great dreams this week. I hope you have a plan and, and an action. I hope you go and build churches. I hope you go and teach young people for the Lord. You want to get to that point one day, then start right now with signing in and signing out and checking in and checking out. Start right now with, with writing thank you notes. Start right now with learning how to serve. You know why student servant leadership is, is modeled and taught and drilled into our hearts? It's to guard against this right here. Because biblically, a true servant has no expectations. A servant does not get up in the morning and say, Boy, I think I deserve this, and I think this person should do this for me, and I think breakfast should be here at this time. No, it's the servant that says, God, it's so good to be saved. Boy, I thank you that you are rich in mercy. God, what can I do for you today to be a blessing? And it's the servant that serves, even in the little things, with joy. 
Expectations can cause you to despise small things. Experiences can cause you to despise small things as well. Our experiences. The Bible says these were ancient men, but it also says they had seen the first house. It's talking about Solomon's temple. And we don't have time this morning to do an in-depth study about Solomon's temple. And just, just to give you a brief comparison side by side, both were constructed of imported cedar wood, but the first temple, Solomon's temple, also included much gold and precious stones. The first temple took seven years to build. This one would only take four. The first temple was the hub of a thriving city in Jerusalem. This was the hub of a burned, ruined city. Simply put, it was not... It would be a while before it would be as glorious and as big as the former house. And by the way, can we just pause here? And, and I, I know I, we just need to address this thought this morning. Just because something is big and just because something is appealing to man's eye, don't always assume that it's pleasing to God. Can I remind you of a previous experience these men had? They've come from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. That means they were present in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden statue that's 60 cubits high or 90 feet. And the Bible says in in Daniel chapter 3 verse 1 that he set it up in Dura in the province of Babylon. That word Dura means the center. And so in other words, he put up this giant statue, statue in the center where everybody could see it, where everybody would be drawn to. And you read the remainder of that chapter, there's all kinds of musical instruments and things of that nature. And there's certainly more that you could say about this, but the principle of Daniel chapter 3, it teaches us. And it's our goal and it's our prayer to apply this principle to Hillcrest Baptist Church come February. It's that the, the, the church that has the focus, that when their central focus of worship is that which draws people and that which is appealing to man, when that is your central focus, God does not get the honor and the glory He deserves. You know what God was glorified and honored in in Daniel chapter 3? It was the remnant that would not bow. It was the little group. And so just because something is big and appealing to man doesn't mean that God is honored with it. And that's definitely not a blanket statement either or a knock against big churches. We thank the Lord for churches like Lancaster Baptist Church and the influence that you have. But looking at this story here in the Bible, as these men had seen the former house and all of its glory, and now they just see these foundations of, boy, this is nothing like we thought it would be. This is not what our expectation was. It would be a while before this church would function as smoothly and as grandly as the former house. Now, if I could just be transparent with you this morning, this may be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, struggles that a church planter faces or a missionary faces. All to be biblical should be sent from a local church. Our sending church is a local church in Phoenix, North Valley Baptist Church with Pastor Brent Loveless, where we served for the past four years. And, and now a former uh, student here, Brother Anthony Garcia and his wife now, Olivia, they're serving there, doing a wonderful job. In the next few years, you may see them right here yourself. They're finishing up their internship and feel the Lord's calling to go to the country of Armenia. I'm glad we have local churches to send us. But that means missionaries and church planners coming from a local church, they're used to some kind of structure. They're used to programs and opportunities that just will not in its entirety all be available as the church is in its infancy. You think of the schedule of a church planner, many days studying and, and then spending the remainder of their hours knocking on doors and knocking on doors. And, and, and we experienced this already a little bit with the, the Bible studies that we've been holding. And we're asking people to come. Would you please come to our church? Would you please come check out what God is doing? 
And the church planner looks there and just waiting on that Sunday as a, as a car drives up and a family drives up and boy, they're so excited. Somebody finally came. And yes, they've got kids with them. They've got teenagers with them. And they come in and they say, hello, we're so-and-so. And the pastor kind of runs over to them and almost knocks them over, I guess, as they're so excited. And say, hey, hello, this is my teenager. He's in the 11th grade. And, and this is so-and-so. They're in the 9th grade. And where's your teen program? And just starting out, the church planner will say, it's until the Lord adds those people, until the Lord brings those people in. We just need one person to have a teen program. If you come and if you stay, you are a teen program. And the family says, we also have a college student. It's away at college right now, but they're going to be home in the summer. Tell me about your singles ministry. What do you have? What's your activity list? What's your schedule like? And the pastor will graciously try to look and tell them, look, it's our vision one day to have this. It's our vision to have a strong music ministry and great peace orchestra and many vocal choir and a team program and children's ministry. But right now we're just starting out. We're in our second month in existence. And right now we've got a program for kids and a program in the nursery. And everybody else is right there together in the main service. But if you'll stay with us, if you'll just come, that's our vision to come. And we want to use you in that. And you go back to make the follow-up visit and you find out, yes, they enjoy the service, yes, they enjoy the preaching, but they just need to go someplace else where those programs were available. It's not that the preachers, not that the church planner, not that the missionary is doing anything wrong. It's just, it's a day of small things right now. And until the Lord brings in laborers for those ministries, that's a battle that they'll have to go through. So that's a battle that my wife and I will face. Say, so is it really a big issue? Well, according to Baptist Church Planting Ministries, great ministry of the late, great Dr. Earl Jessup, church plants today do not survive past their second year in existence. Two years. Church planter and his wife reaches that third year, and that ministry will tell you it just starts to pile up, and the burnout can get on them. And many churches are closing their doors today. Seven and a half billion people in the world, we need churches that are going to make it past two years in existence. How does that happen? Because we have an expectation and, boy, God doesn't work according to how we think He's supposed to work. And yes, we're coming from these experiences. We're expecting some great things and we're not quite able to do that until a few years down the road. It's our nature to despise small things. But I want to point out to you secondly and lastly to this, this morning, it's our nature to despise small things, but it's God's nature to emphasize small things. The God that you and I serve emphasizes faithfulness in the small things. And we learn this a couple of ways as well. We learn this from the teachings of Jesus Christ. When you read the Bible, you read the New Testament, you read the truths conveyed in the Old Testament, many times the pictures and the parables that Jesus used to convey truth, they involve the small, little, ordinary things of life that you and I would overlook. We're Instructed in the book of Proverbs to consider the ant. Consider the coney, little, tiny things. You read in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of how God takes, the Father takes care of the lily, the raven. Jesus, Jesus notices the, the cup of cold water that's given in His name. In fact, Luke chapter 21 and verse 3, one of the final things that Jesus does in his earthly ministry, one of the final things Jesus does before he goes to the cross, as he's walking in the temple there, he observes an offering. He observes the Pharisees throwing in the great amounts, and then he observes a widow. 
who casts in her two mites. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 21 and verse 3. He says, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God, but she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. The world, everyone else looked at that widow and just saw a widow who wasn't doing much comparative to everyone else. Jesus looked at her and saw her heart and focused and admonished her because of it. The things that are small may not catch the glance of man, but they do not escape the eyes of God. God's plan hinges on faithfulness in the little things. We see this from the teachings of Christ. We see this from the life of Christ as well. And I, w- I want to point out one other passage to you this morning. Uh, if you will, turn back to Haggai chapter 2. Right before Zechariah, Haggai chapter 2. All these men, all these prophets are contemporaries ministering at the same time in the same story here. What is the big deal about the small things? Well, God makes a big deal about it. Haggai chapter 2. Hey, let's look at verse number 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you now see it? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So it's talking to the same group that we've just addressed about in Ezra chapter 3. And now if you will, drop down to verse number 6. It says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Did you catch verse number 9? The glory of this house. Right now with just the foundations, the one that everybody else is looking at and weeping and saying, boy, it's not as grand, it's not as glorious as the former house. That's the one that God says, hey, you tell those fellows what I'm about to do in that place will exceed everything in the first place. The glory that I will manifest will be greater. How is that possible? We read the story this morning in John chapter 8. Jesus walked in what? The temple. Years later, down the road, this house is the same house that Jesus Christ Himself walks in, teaches in, and changes lives in. God said, I will manifest my presence. I will make my glory known. And He did it literally. Jesus Christ walked in the house. See, the message to Zerubbabel is, hey, this, this house, it may not seem much. It may seem small compared to what else is going on. But you just stay faithful. I see the plans that I have for you. I know what I'm doing here. And Zerubbabel, if you just will be faithful to do what I've called you to do, I will show up and do something great in that house. Why do missionaries go through the journey like we talked about? Why do church planters go through all those things knowing our expectations might not be what they thought they were, our our experiences might not be met? Why do they go through all of that? It's for this reason right here. It's the desire of all these missionaries. 
It's the desire of this church planter and this church planter down here on the second row. It's our prayer every morning. Lord, whether we're meeting in a building like this, whether we're meeting in a school or a home Bible study where we're starting out, whether we're meeting in a grass hut, it makes no difference. God, our prayer is that you would show up. You would manifest yourself in this place and you would make a difference in the lives of those in it. God's message to Zerubbabel is, yes, you're focused on what the outside looks like. Zerubbabel, I am focused by what takes place on the inside. Because when God shows up, that which is little becomes big. How does God reveal Himself? How does God manifest Himself today? Men that are taking orals in a few weeks, here's your practice. How does God reveal Himself today? Certainly through His Word. What else does the Bible say? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the earth showeth forth His framework. God spoke the words and boom, the heavens were formed. And God said, and God said, and God said, and it was good. Do you realize God could have spoke the words and boom, there would have been a temple? God could have said, Zerubbabel, I see you're hurting. I, I see you. this is not quite what you thought it was. Just step back over there. Just step back and watch what I'm about to do. That's not what God said. Before Jesus could walk in that temple, Zerubbabel had to finish the work. He had to finish the task that God gave him to do. That's why in Zechariah chapter 4, God said, They will rejoice when you see the plumb line in your hands. And they finally see the temple being built and they recognize all that I will do in this place. Before all that could happen, Zerubbabel had to finish the work. The basic missions emphasis principle this morning. The missions in the bottom line. What is missions? It's more than money in an offering plate. It's more than visual presentations, and you know that. I believe missions in its simplest form, either here in Lancaster or around the world, it's you being obedient to what God has designed you for so He can manifest Himself through you. You being obedient, you being faithful, to the work that God has created you for so He can manifest Himself and change others through that work, through you. I shared with you one of my fondest memories of college. I'll share with you in closing my one regret. Four years of college, I have one regret. Dr. Rasmussen introduced me and he mentioned that I worked really hard and, and studied and tried to get some good grades and that was true for about the first two years of my college experience. I worked as hard as I could and studied as hard as I could and averaged about A's and B's and was thankful for that and then something happened my third year. I was introduced to a beautiful young lady named Alexa and my time with Alexa went like this, it increased and my GPA went <laughs> Not dramatically, just gradually. Over time, more time I spent with her and less time that I found an interest in studying and it had an effect slowly but surely. My senior year, I decided I'd do something different. I'd gone four years and I had never been in the choir. So I, 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 wanted, I was in the orchestra, but I think I want to be in the choir. So I signed up for choir my last year and went through all my other uh, classes and schedules and I, I sat down with Alexa and we looked, we both had uh, chapel, we both had a fifth hour class, a class after chapel. And then the only time that we would be able to spend time together between our different work schedules, it was that time, about a 30-minute time, where we could eat lunch together or I could go to choir. I say, well, what did you do? Well, I'm not a dummy. I, I chose to spend time with Alexa. He's like, I, I, I'll, I'll take it. it. It's okay. I'll take care of it. There's that drop in, in ad period. There's those three days that we had before as the, as the semester starts. I'll just turn in a form and I'll just drop choir. 
Well, the first day came and I got busy and I didn't turn in the flyer. Second day came, same thing. Third day came, guess what? I never turned in the form to drop choir. Somehow, by the grace of God, I got a C in choir. Now, how many of you wish you could not show up to class and get a C? No, just kidding. Don't put your hands down. <laughs> so what's the big deal? My final GPA, 3.43. I miss graduating with honors by that much. Pastor Mitchell, how many times in five years has somebody asked you what your GPA is? No, that's not the question. The question is how many times have I reminded myself I didn't give God my very best. It's so the Lord's mercies were not consumed. His compassions fail not. His mercies are new morning my morning. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God gives me His very best every single day. Why would I settle to give Him less? Hey, I hope this week you've caught a dream, you've caught a vision, you've got a burden, you've got a calling. Go to Honduras. Come and help us in Asia, in Arizona. Go to Asia. Go to other parts of the United States and plant churches and start schools and win people to Christ. But don't neglect the process. Be faithful in the day of small things and serve with joy. And that's when you're in a place where God can begin to use you to do something big in His eyes. Father, would you help us this morning? Thank you that you give us the opportunity to serve you. You didn't, you were not dependent on Zerubbabel. You did not need him to accomplish your work, but you chose to use him. And Lord, may we not view our responsibilities as duties, but as privileges. You give us your very best every single day. And you deserve nothing less from us. And maybe we, we just need to find a place around this altar and say, God, forgive me. Boy, when I got started at college, man, my bus route was exciting, but now it's October. Man, my, my roommates, I enjoy serving with my roommates in the first part of the year, but it's kind of turned into more of a duty. Don't despise the day of small things.